If you have your Bible, we're in John chapter 6 today. So John chapter 6 is where we're going to hang out. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisles. They've got Bibles you can use today. They've got Bibles you can have. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. So today's a good day to have a Bible in your hand because there's a, there's a little bit to follow along with. It'll be on the screen, but if you've got it on your phone or in a Bible, um, that's even better. And make sure you pull out that, uh, that form, that that study notes from your bulletin so that you can follow along what we're going to learn today because we have started a year at Journey 2016 that we're calling the year of deep and wide. That's kind of our ministry theme this year, deep and wide. We want every person in our church to go deeper spiritually this year than they've ever gone before. And we want the impact of our church and of your life to be wider this year, bigger than it's ever been before. So we said we're going to start this year of deep and wide by asking people and challenging people to follow. To follow Jesus like they've never followed Jesus before. And for the last five weeks, we've been talking about how to follow Jesus at unparalleled levels, deeper than you've ever followed him before. And the question I want to start this message with, the question that I want to end this series with, we begin a new series in a couple weeks, is this. Would you say that you're all in spiritually this year? As you look at 2016, would you say 2016 is a year where I'm all in spiritually? Or are you the type of person spiritually and in every other area of life that's all in until you're all upset and then you quit? Are you somebody who's all in on your diet until you don't lose enough weight fast enough and then you're all upset and you quit? Are you somebody who's all in to working out until you don't see gains fast enough or maybe you get a little tired and then you get all upset and you quit? Are you somebody who's all into marriage until you realize how hard marriage is and then you get all upset and you quit? Are you somebody who's all into your new job until you realize your new job isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be and then you get all upset and you quit? Are you someone who's all into starting new relationships until someone offends you and turns you off and then you get all upset and you quit? Are you someone who gets all in and commits? Or are you somebody who gets all in until you're all upset and then you quit? Because in John chapter 6, we meet a crowd of people that at the time was all in spiritually. But we see three different groups of people that were all in. And two of them were all in until they were all upset. And then they were out. And as we get ready to go into 2016, I want you to step all in knowing what I mean by asking you to do that. And I want to ask you to get all in and stay all in. Don't just get all in for a little while and then step back out. As we get into John chapter 6, let me just set the scene for you. A, a huge crowd is following Jesus in John chapter 6. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus in John chapter 6 had a crowd that was so large. They'd been following him for so long. They're pretty dedicated to his ministry that Jesus told his disciples, we really need to feed these people. I don't think they can go home and be healthy if we don't give them something to eat first. And the disciples said, there's too many. Um, they found a kid who had some bread and some fish. Jesus blessed him. The Bible said he fed 5,000 men with that fish and those loaves of bread. Which means when you add the women and the children there, there were probably between twelve and 20,000 people there. A massive crowd of people that was following Jesus in John chapter 6. He was feeding their bodies. They were hungry. He was giving them food. He was feeding their families. He was taking care of the entire family unit that was following. He was feeding their souls with their teaching, and they were all in. They were like, man, we want more of this. We're all in with Jesus. And maybe you today would say, I'm all in with Jesus. That's great if you're all in today, but I want you to stay all in. Because the Bible says after this event that Jesus told his disciples, we got to go back home. And he put his disciples in a boat. They went across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus went to pray. By the time he was done praying, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And Jesus thought, shoot, they left me. So I'll just walk on the water and catch up with them. That miracle happened in John chapter 6. So he went walking by him on the Sea of Galilee. He ended up in the boat. They ended up on the shore. And the next morning, the people who were all in 
12 to 20,000 of them found Jesus on the far shore. And they were like, man, we're with you, you're with us. Um, let's figure out how to keep moving forward. And we meet some people who are all in until they get all upset. And then they left. But we see one group that was all in. And even though it was one of the most difficult things in their life, they stayed all in. And we see the blessing that God gave them. I want to talk to you today about being all in for good. But we have to start by looking at people who are all in for just a little bit. Number one, we see those in John chapter 6, this group of people who are all in for what Jesus gives them. And maybe this is you. As long as Jesus is blessing you, you're all in. As long as it is about what Jesus can exchange with you, you're all in. We see a group of people in John chapter 6 that as long as Jesus is giving them something, they're all in. But when he stops giving, they get out pretty quickly. Look at verses 25 through 36 of John chapter 6. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, day after he fed 5,000 men plus their families, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of, he the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. These people were all in spiritually, so much so that they walked around the Sea of Galilee, which is not like a little lake. It's eight miles long. It's three miles wide at its widest point. Probably a day journey to get around to find Jesus because they were all in. And they got to Jesus and they said, we'd like more of what you gave us yesterday. Man, we're with you. Give us some more. And Jesus said, I've got nothing to give you today but me. Is that enough? And they were like, uh, not really, actually. Um, can't you at least do a sign? Um, and he was like, I, I am the sign. So couldn't you give us a little more bread, maybe? And he said, well, I am the bread. Um, today all I have is me. Am I enough? And they said, no, I don't think so. You see, the crowd in John 6 clearly wanted what Jesus could offer them. But they didn't want Jesus. And there are a lot of people in the church world today who want really bad what Jesus can offer them, but they don't want Jesus when it really comes to finding out what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Have you ever gotten tricked into one of those timeshare, the vacation station meeting things? Have you ever got something in the mail that says you can take a cruise, you and your wife, for a week for $99 and that's all it is, all inclusive? Or you can take a trip to the coast of Florida or to Branson or to California and it's $99 for a whole week. It's basically like free vacation. Have you ever gone on any of those things? I used to get those when Danielle and I were young marrieds. And you would show up and indeed you'd check in and for $99 you could stay seven nights at this unbelievable place. But there was a catch. Along with the sun and the fun and the lodging and even some of the food, there was this 90-minute presentation that you had to attend where they would lock you in and they wouldn't let you out until you bought something. Now, it wasn't like that fierce, but it's close. 
And I remember the first time we got tricked into one of these timeshare deals and we went and we were having a good time and then they said, oh, you can't, like, you can't leave until you come to this meeting. And I remember sitting in that meeting when they were trying to sell me something thinking, this is just unbelievable that they would do this to me. It's unbelievable that they would invite me here and give me all this stuff and then they would expect something in return before telling me that they wanted that on the front end. And I was really upset. I thought, you know, how dare they? Offer me all this stuff, let me begin to enjoy it, and then say, oh, by the way, if you ever want to come back, you've got you to pay this. You know, a lot of people look at Jesus that way. They hear about eternal life. They hear about forgiveness. They hear about inner peace. They hear about direction. They hear about mercy. They hear about grace. And they're like, man, that, that sounds unbelievable. I'm in. And they start down this road of Christianity for what Jesus can give them. And then they hear Jesus say, okay, now let me tell you what I ask of you. And they think, how dare you? How dare Jesus ask anything of me? Who does he think he is? After offering me all this stuff to come back and say, now here's what I need you to do for me. And a lot of people are all in with Jesus for what he can give them. But when Jesus said, here's what I want from you, they're like, no, that's, that's no good. Jesus said, all I can offer you today is me. And they said, we need a sign. And Jesus said, I am the sign. They said, okay, we don't need a sign, just give us bread. And Jesus said, I, I am the bread. See, Jesus is saying, I'm enough. What Jesus is trying to teach in John chapter 6 is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is telling them, you don't need a sign if you have me. I'm enough. Jesus is telling them, you don't need bread if you have me. I'm enough. They actually tried to tell Jesus, you know, we saw a little bit of the sign you did, but that wasn't good enough. You fed us yesterday, and that was cool. We admit that that's a good trick. But Moses fed the people every day for 40 years. So feed us every day for 40 years, and then we'll decide if you're truly supernatural. And Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not about what I can give you. It's about me. Follow me. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, which means Jesus plus anything equals idolatry. You can actually take Jesus out of the equation. When you're following Jesus for something, that something is actually your God, and Jesus is just the tool that gets you to your God. So these people said, we want Jesus for the signs. They were worshiping the sign, not the man. We want Jesus for the food. They were worshiping the food, not the man. And in your life, if Jesus plus anything equals something, it's idolatry. So I'm all in for Jesus as long as he's given me something. Because really, I'm following Jesus to get this thing. Exodus 23 is the very first of the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me or beside me. What does that mean? God said, don't use me to get something else that you think is more important. So first commandment, don't use me to get something you think is more important, equal to or better than me. And there are a lot of people in John chapter 6 who were following Jesus for what he could give them, but not for who he was. And when he said, all you need is me, I'm, I, I'm enough. They said, no, we don't think so. So would you say you're following Jesus for Jesus or for what Jesus gives you? Now, let me put it another way. If some of the blessings you've been experiencing all of a sudden pull back, but Jesus is still there, is it good enough? Are you done with him if he doesn't bring the blessings with him? Because when you stop receiving what is the real reason you're following Jesus, a lot of people stop following Jesus. And if you're all in to receive from Jesus, but you get all upset, when you have to follow Jesus, there might be a problem following Jesus more deeply in 2016 than you ever have. And that's the goal of this year, that you would follow Jesus more deeply than you ever have. And some of you say, I will, if he will give me more than he's ever given me. You're going to have a problem along the way somewhere. 
If the only reason you follow Jesus is for what he gives you now and that gift quits coming and you get all upset, you might walk away like this group. But there's another group in John chapter 6 that I want to be honest with you. I think, I think most Christians probably find themselves in this group. I find myself in group 2 too often. Many times throughout every week, I find myself in this group. There's a group of people in John chapter, chapter 6 that are all in for what's acceptable to them. I want to explain this to you. Because I think most of you would say, yeah, I've, I'm, in that, I'm in that group at least. I, you know, I might be in that group, hopefully, and, and the one that's better. But I'm definitely in this one. Those who are all in for what's acceptable to them. Look at verses 47 through 60. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, at this point, Jesus hadn't gone crazy. I mean, he's using spiritual metaphors that are difficult, but he hadn't gone crazy. But the, the Pharisees and the Jews, they ask the dumbest question that could ever be asked. So Jesus kind of plays into their question. And he says some things here that are just weird. But we'll go ahead and read them. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, oh, why not? We'll run with it. Jesus said to them. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus just took what it meant to follow him, and he made it weird. I mean, if nothing else, he made, it, he made it awkward. Like, you definitely needed a follow-up question, too. You know, okay, let, let me see if I understand this correctly. But it's interesting, the statement that was made. These people didn't say, okay, we don't understand what you're saying. Explain that to us a little more. They said this. I don't think I can accept that teaching. You know what's interesting about this crowd that follows Jesus and are all in for what's acceptable to them? There's so much present value in Jesus' teaching at this level of what's acceptable to us that following Jesus is usually worth it here. I mean, I've, I've said many times, you don't even have to be a Christian to have your family become better by leading your family the way the Bible says to them. I mean, there's so much acceptable teaching that Jesus says, lead your family this way, that we're like, yes, I agree with that. There's so much good stuff on parenting in the Bible. You don't have to be a deep follower of Jesus to accept what he's saying and think, I need to do that. There's so much good stuff on marriage and love and forgiveness and relationships and leadership and generosity and serving. There's a lot that we read in the Bible that your soul is like, yes, this is going to make me a better human being. This is going to make me a better citizen of this community. This is going to make me a better dad and a better husband. And this is very acceptable to me. And there's a lot of Christians that love what Jesus can do to make them better because they feel like it's better. But then there's these harder areas of Scripture where when someone really does you wrong, you turn the other cheek. 
and choose not to get even. It's like, hey, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I like that. There's these issues of morality where Jesus says, you know what, this type of life is the righteous kind of life, the right kind of life, and this type of life is offensive to God. It's like, well, maybe if I believe that. But if I don't believe that, I don't know that I will accept that. In areas of righteousness, here's how Jesus wants you to live your life. In areas of finances, here's how Jesus wants you to, to live with, with your finances. In areas of sacrifice, giving away your time, your talent, your treasure to help others, living for other people. In areas of authority, learning to be in submission to God and his word and to spiritual leaders and to head of households and to bosses and coaches and teachers, learning authority. There's a lot that the Bible says that, that the teaching is hard. And we don't agree with it at first step. It's, it's hard to accept that I live my life this way. Somebody I'm very close to lives their life this way. But Jesus says, no, the right way is that way. It's very easy for us to say, I don't accept that. And, and I'm all in until you offend me by teaching something I disagree with and then I'm out. And what's really interesting is how honest people are getting in this level of Christianity in today's day and age. We actually have people that call our church. You can ask our elders because we have conference calls about a lot of them who will say, hey, I'm looking for a new church. And here's what I believe. If your church believes what I believe, I'll come. So do you believe this? And we always say, well, we believe the Bible. And I'll say, yeah, 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 but there's these things in the Bible that we don't accept. Um, so if you accept them, we're not coming to your church. We're looking for a church that believes this but not this. So where do you stand? And we, say, we always say, well, we, we believe the Bible in the nature of who Jesus is in the Bible and how he handles everything. I mean, you don't have to go very far to find someone who will say, this page of the Bible I accept. This page of the Bible I don't accept, so I'm going to tear it out, and I am going to create for myself a Jesus that I agree with and a Jesus who I can accept. But Jesus can't touch my money, and Jesus can't touch my morality, and Jesus can't touch how I treat people, and Jesus can't really tell me what to do with my time. Um, like, the, the good stuff Jesus teaches, I'm all in with that. But anything that kind of personally makes me uncomfortable, I'm not doing that. And this group heard Jesus say something that was spiritually tough, and in John 6.60, it says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? We don't think we can do that. If you're in here today and you're all in as long as you agree with Jesus, but you get all upset when his teaching is hard, when what he asks you to do is difficult, then you might have a problem this year following Jesus more deeply than you ever have before. And there's a group of people in John chapter 6 we find like that. And there's a group of people in every church, starting with me, that when Jesus says something to do that's really hard, you kind of waver for a minute and you have to think, okay, do I really want to do that? Or can I follow Jesus without going all the way with Jesus? So there's a group of people who are all in until Jesus doesn't give them what they want and then they're out. There's a group of people who are all in until Jesus teaches something slightly different than what they've always believed or how they want to live their life. And then they're all out. But then there's this, this third group that I want to be in. There's this third group that I want to try to figure out how to live in. But this is, a, this is a group that's difficult to hang around. Because there are those who are all in for spiritual and eternal life. Even though it's with a fearful trust. There's a group of people who say, Jesus can have all of me, but it scares them to say that. There's a group of people who will say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and whatever I find that Jesus says is right, 
that I'm doing that's wrong. I'm, I'm going to quit doing that. There's a group of people who say, I'm going to let Jesus lead me. But they're almost afraid of saying that because they know that that's going to have some kind, create some kind of change in their lives. Yet we see this group in John chapter 6. Look at verses 61 through 69. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this. We're teaching, people upset, people leaving. Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them didn't believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love what Peter says here because Peter doesn't really answer his question. Peter and the disciples see what's going on. They're bothered by what's going on. They're seeing probably friends and family who used to follow who are ditching out because Jesus is saying difficult things to understand. And he turns to the disciples and says, do you want to quit too? And Peter doesn't say yes or no. Peter says this. I'm not sure where we'd go. It's not that I'm not considering quitting. But I'm not sure where we go. Here's what we've come to believe. That following you leads to eternal life. And we've come to believe that we can trust you. So do we want to leave? I won't say yes. But we will stay. I mean, the disciples, the 12 disciples had to be confused. But they weren't quitters. Because Peter didn't say, no, we know you're just telling a story. We get it. Peter just said, I'm not sure what's going on, but we'll stay. He didn't think what Jesus was saying he was supposed to do. He didn't, didn't, when Jesus said, do you want to leave? He didn't say no and pick up a fork and say, let's eat. You know, it's like, I'll I'll take a thigh, who wants his leg? I mean, Peter didn't say, where's the Tabasco? He, He knew Jesus didn't mean they were supposed to eat him. But he didn't know what Jesus meant. But what he knew is even though the teaching was hard, he knew that he trusted Jesus. And he thought, you know, Jesus, I'm not exactly sure what's going on, but I'm not going to quit. You see, spiritually difficult things should not bring spiritual death to us. When you walk up to a spiritual door that becomes the most difficult spiritual doorway that you've ever had to walk through because your worldview is changing or the way you live your life is changing or the way you manage relationships or money is changing, that's not when you quit and say, I just give up and you go back through all the other doors that you've walked through. But that might be the scariest doorway you've ever passed through up till that point in your life. Spiritually confusing things shouldn't lead to spiritual, spiritually quitting. I don't understand what Jesus is saying here. I, I don't understand why Jesus would say that someone I love so much is sincerely wrong in their belief. I don't understand why Jesus would look at how much I struggle with money and he would say that I should give too. I, I don't understand why Jesus would say I should look at this person who hurt me so badly and I should forgive them. That's confusing to me, but I trust Jesus. So I'll try to follow him. These kind of things just take a different level of faith. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, because it pictures perfectly the picture of the disciples where I so constantly find myself as, uh, myself as a Christian, as a pastor. It says in Luke 18, 31 through 34, Je- Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, 
we're going to go up to Jerusalem and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will, deliver over to the, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him. They're going to flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. Verse 34. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they didn't even know what he was talking about. Could you picture this scene? Like Jesus is like, sit down, I need to tell you something. And he basically says, they are going to brutally beat me and kill me, but I'll rise again. Got it? And they're all like, got it. And then he walks up and leaves. And someone says, Peter, what does that mean? Peter's like, I've got no idea, but let's go. Like the, the Bible says, they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. But they followed. There are a lot of times I come across something in Scripture, something where God leads my spirit to do. And I say, God, I don't know why you would want me to do that. I don't understand why you would allow in our community three high school students to die in the same year in car accidents. I don't get that. I don't understand that. I can't learn about that. But I trust Jesus. So, so somewhere I've got to exist in a faith between what I don't understand and who I am trying to follow. I live in this, this world of fearful, hard faith. And there comes a moment in every Christian's life that requires faith. Kind of the unknown spiritual trust, even though it scares you to death. Being willing to believe and follow even things you don't totally understand at this point. Christianity begins that way with salvation. Being able to trust your soul to an eternal unseen God doesn't make any sense without faith. Being baptized, publicly going before people that you know and say, I want to follow Jesus, I want everyone to know I'm a Christian. That takes faith. Faith in an unseen, eternal God. Making changes to your life just because the Bible says so takes faith that for some reason Jesus said that will be better and we have to trust that. Hebrews 11 says faith is the confidence of what we hope for. It's the assurance about what we don't see. Verse 6 goes on to say without faith. It's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. But we say, man, I didn't know Christianity was supposed to be this hard. I didn't know following Jesus could be this scary sometimes. I didn't know that hearing what Jesus had to say could be so confusing sometimes. But let me give you a verse and a story that tell us it is. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was writing to a church he founded in Philippians. And here's what he said spiritual growth looked like for those of you who thought it might be easy. In Philippians 2.12, Paul said, Therefore, my dear brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound easy? Paul said sometimes Jesus tells us to obey things that scare us to death. Sometimes Jesus tells us things that are right. This word trembling means anger. That's the picture. Have you ever been so mad you started shaking? Paul said sometimes Jesus says, this is right regardless of what you've always believed. And it makes you so angry that you shake. And Paul said, that's all right. Just figure it out. Keep moving forward. Fear is real. Anger is real. But Jesus is real. And sometimes you have to follow in faith. Let me give you a story. Abraham, who is the, the forefather of our faith. When God called him to take his first step of faith to leave his family to travel to a land which would later become the nation of Israel. Listen to this in Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he didn't even know where he was going. How awesome is that? 
Picture this. He's convinced his wife and all of his family to load up in caravans, donkeys and camels and servants and nieces and nephews and whatever. And they get about an hour into the trip. And Sarah says, "Um, Abraham, babe, uh, how many hours till we get there? And he's like, you know, driving his camel. However, you drive a camel maybe with cords or something. And he's like, I don't know. He said, well, how... How far is it from where, from where we live? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, well, where, where are we going? I don't even know. I just know God called us to go. You ever feel like that spiritually? Our elders had a four-hour meeting last Sunday after church talking about the future of our church. And one of the things we talked about was the next church we believe God is calling us to plant. The next church we believe God's calling us to start in the next few years. We started kind of asking questions like, well, who will work at it and where will it be and how are we going to fund it? And like every question was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, why are we doing it? We believe God told us to. We believe it's the vision of churches to plant churches. Abraham said, I don't know, but I trust God. I'm not even sure how this is going to work, but I trust God, I think. Have you ever been there? Where you say, I trust God, I think. In Mark chapter 9, we meet a dad whose son is sick and dying because of epileptic seizures. And he meets Jesus. And he, he asked Jesus, if you can help, help. And Jesus said, I can help anyone who believes. Do you believe? And the dad said in Mark 9, 24, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus said, do you believe? And he was like, I do, I think. You going to follow Jesus? Yes, I think. Can we trust Jesus for everything in our future if we just do what he tells us to do? Absolutely, I hope. That's the thought of faith. It is the confidence of what we can't know clinging to the person of Jesus. And what I believe is that when we live in faith, it's not a place of spiritual weakness, it's a place of spiritual strength. Fearfully working out your salvation, moving from what you know to be true to what you hope to be true. That pathway of faith where you're scared and where you learn to pray and where you learn to look to to God and where you learn to kind of really focus in on what God wants, those are places of strength in our life, not weakness. So if God's called you to do something that's scary, you're getting stronger, not weaker. If God has called you to make a commitment that you have no idea how you can make, that's leading you to strength, not weakness, spiritually. And the reality is, if we'll get all in spiritually, you'll begin to see Jesus working all over your life. But it takes steps of faith, moving through the unknown to get there. And I love what Jesus says. If we just hang around Jesus long enough, it all makes sense. In John 6, 63, after people said this is a hard teaching and we can't accept it, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, listen, of course I don't want you to eat me. If you bite me, I'm going to smack you. This, you've you got to understand, I'm talking about spiritual things. Look what he says in John 6, 63. Some of you missed it because you were like, Jesus has lost his mind. Jesus said the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. I'm not talking about the flesh. The words I've spoken to you are full of spirit in life. I'm not talking to you about eating a person. How stupid is that? I'm talking to you about spiritual things. But there's got to be this spiritual appreciation of saying, 
when I don't understand spiritual things, I trust a spiritual man named Jesus. So like Peter, I don't always want to excitedly follow, but where else are you going to go? We believe Jesus leads to spiritual life and eternal life. So if not him, who are we going to follow? So even when it takes fearful trust, we follow. We're going to close this series by taking communion today. Our band's going to come now and they're going to get ready to play and lead us in a little worship while we take communion. But even taking communion takes some spiritual understanding of the spiritual demands of life. There's no better thing to show you what Jesus meant in John chapter 6 than taking communion, taking the Lord's Supper together. Because there's three words that you have to understand for communion to mean something to you. The first is the word body. Jesus said, you have to eat my body. What does that mean? Jesus said, not that you have to eat, but Jesus said, you have to accept my body in your place. You see, the Old Testament, when God set up the Old Testament law, God said, if you ever want to get to me and have a relationship with me, you have to be perfect in your time on earth. And I don't know about you, but I've fallen a little short of that. But Jesus did not. Jesus came and lived in a perfect body, and he lived the perfect life for you and in your place so that one day when you stand before God, God said, listen, you can choose your body or Jesus' body. Which one do you want, the imperfect one or the perfect one? And by taking communion, we're saying, I want Jesus' body in my place. I want his perfection to overcome my imperfection. The blood of Jesus. In the Old Testament, blood was required for a sacrifice. The wages of sin are death, which means something had to die. So once a year, they would sacrifice the Passover lamb on, uh, on a day that we know on our calendar as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, a, a, a lamb's blood would be shed to cover the sins of the people in everything that they'd done for the last year. It was the thought that the price of sin, death, had been paid. And it had been paid on your behalf. You see, one day we're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to, God's going to say, did you sin? And we're going to say yes. And God's going to say, okay, that sin requires death. Now, here are your options. You can choose to die for your sin. Or you can choose Jesus' blood. He already did it. If you want, you can step out and I'll, I'll have him take your death. You can trade. That's what the blood of communion means. That's, that's what the grape juice that we drink means. It means that we understand our sins deserve death, but we don't have to die that death. And then there's this word believe. What is belief? Beliefs, it's not just an understanding. Belief is that perfect spiritual trust that allows us to follow even when it's hard and even when we're afraid. It allows us to follow because we trust Jesus. Maybe this story will help you understand what God wants to do in you and what communion symbolizes. In June of 2013, there was a mother in Southern California named Heather Clark. And she had to go out and run a few errands, so she left her seven-month-old son, Lucas. Maybe you saw this circulating this week on the news or in the paper, on Facebook. She left her seven-month-old son, Lucas, with a babysitter. And when she returned a few hours later, that babysitter had so badly abused her seven-month-old son, Lucas, that he was unconscious. She rushed him to the hospital. He ended up in ICU for a few days before the doctor came and told his mom, Heather, I'm sorry, he's not going to make it. The damage that has been done is so severe that um, he's not going to live. But here's what you can do. Some of the most difficult organ donations 
to find are organ donations from children the age of your son. And there are kids all over the world who could be blessed if you'd be willing to donate his organs so that someone else could live. The first thought of that, she said, I just don't know. I just need a few days to think about it. So she took a few days to think about what had been asked of her. And then she went back and she told the doctor, okay, I'll donate his organs. Laying in Phoenix, Arizona at the exact same time was a little girl by the name of Jordan Drake. She'd been born with a heart that didn't work. When she was young, just a few months old, they put a kind of a mechanical heart in her, but that gave out. It kept getting infected. And at about the age of 18 months, they went and told her mom, Esther, it's not going to work for her. We don't have any ability without a brand new heart to help her. She probably won't make it long term. When Heather said yes to donating Lucas's organ, they packed up his little heart. They flew it to Phoenix, Arizona, and they put it in this little girl, Jordan. And it took. But a year later, Heather got connected with an organization that helps people really overcome their grief who have been organ um, donors. And they sent out a mass Facebook message saying, you know, hey, if you had a young child that at this time received an organ donation, would you reach out to us? Maybe you could help bring healing. And Esther saw it and she reached out through Facebook, but that message got lost for two years in kind of a junk folder in Heather's Facebook. This year, just before Christmas, she was cleaning out her stuff and she saw that message. And she contacted the mother and they found out, indeed, her daughter had her son's heart. And last week, they connected for the first time in a hospital in Phoenix. And they gave Heather a stethoscope and they let, it, let her put it on and listen to her son who had died three years earlier, listen to his heartbeat that was keeping this little girl alive. They captured that on video and I want to show you about a 12 second clip of the moment this mom hurt her son's heart after three years of knowing he was gone. I've seen that enough times that it shouldn't bother me anymore. But I saw that on Tuesday. I'm at the club working out. I'm doing shoulder presses, and that's on the news, and I'm crying watching it. Just so touched. And as I, as I go from one machine to the next, I'm wiping my eyes like I had just worked out hard. So I didn't want anyone to think I was crying. So I had my towel acting like I had a real good workout. And as I was, as I was walking over to do the next thing, it literally was like the Lord tapped on my shoulder. And said, hey, hey, Christian, Christian. And I said, yeah, Lord. And he said, Christian, when I put my stethoscope up to your chest, do I hear my son's heart beating inside of you? Or are you still in control? Have you accepted a total spiritual organ replacement yet? Have you allowed Jesus in his heart to beat for you? Or do you, do you use his heart for a little bit while he gives what he gives you and then you take it back? And do you use his heart for a little bit spiritually until he says something that offends you and then you take it back? Or Christian, have, have you allowed 
his life to take over your life so much that even when it scares you to death, you move forward. Because the only reason you're alive spiritually is because he's inside of you. And you can trust him. You know, as we take communion this morning, it signifies an organ transplant. The spiritual death that you were born with has been replaced by spiritual life. A parent allowed their son's death to mean life for us. And all he asks in return is that we just follow him, that we trust him.